Amen. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Children, let me invite you to make your way to the back, find your teachers. And I just want to start with a confession. Uh, so I'm getting ready to preach a sermon uh, that, has, that is weighty, I do believe. Um, and essentially it's about molding God into our own image and so our worship is comfortable. And I'm sitting here this morning and I'm like, it's already 11.10 and I'm not yet in the pulpit. And I got a long sermon in front of me. And we're going to be five minutes late getting out this morning. That's ridiculous. And so I just want to get that off of me and maybe onto you, I don't know. But I'm going to preach a sermon that God has given me. And if we go to 12.15, we go to 12.15. If we get out at another time, it's fine. God is glorious and good. Let me pray. Father, you are glorious and you are good. You are worthy of worship. And so we gather here to worship your name. And we do so only through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, I wonder if you were asked what is the greatest danger facing the church in America right now. I wonder how you would answer that. Is it the loss of Christianity's so-called moral majority? Certainly not. What about the rise of atheism or those who say they're spiritual but not religious? Or perhaps it's postmodernism and saying there's no such thing as absolute truth and so we should affirm Every belief. Are these the major threats? Maybe, but all those are external. And I'm not sure the greatest hindrance lies outside the church. Could it be the greatest danger to the American church is a comfortable Christianity that is no Christianity at all? Could it be that Satan's tactic is not just to get people to deny Jesus is the Son of God, but rather to take His name and then live as if Jesus died and rose again, but it doesn't matter. Could it be that comfortable, convenient version of Christianity is like a vaccine that inoculates people so they don't get the real thing and can't spread it? Well, as we'll see in Judges 17 and 18, this is a danger that plagued the Israelites. In the time of Judges, Israel worshipped a God they wanted instead of the God who is. And we may think, we're not like them bowing down to carved idols. At least we're not doing that. But that only makes the danger all the more subtle and hard to identify. Brothers and sisters, we need to see God's grace and celebrate it and surrender our lives, every aspect of our lives, to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. For my non-Christian friends here this morning, I'm thankful that you're here. And what I hope you see is God is not okay with people taking His name and then mocking Him with their lives. You probably know somebody like that that has taken the name of Christ and then mocks Him with their lives. God's not okay with that. To be clear, Christians are not perfect. No, not at all. And we don't think we're better than other people. True Christians know our flaws and how much we need the grace of God. And so my prayer is this morning, non-Christian friend, is that you too will see your need for the grace of God that covers and redeems all those who trust in Christ alone. So this morning we take the final turn in the book of Judges. The book began with a double introduction in chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapters 3 through 16 we saw these cycles 
of disobedience, destruction, distress, and deliverance. And throughout those cycles, we met 12 judges that God used to deliver his people. And then in these final chapters, 17 through 21, we, we have what we basically is a double conclusion. You can think of it as two exclamation points at the end of this dark cautionary tale. And you'll notice these chapters are not, they're, they're, they're at the end, but they're not placed chronologically. In fact, these chapters look back and they show us how not just the leaders, but the everyday people have been rebelling against God. And so in chapters 17 and 18, we see Israel's religious corruption. And then in chapters 19 through 21, we see Israel's relational destruction. So in, in essence, these, these chapters show us how, God, how Israel failed to love God and failed to love neighbor. And you'll notice as we read these chapters of the next coming weeks, there's a new repetition. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end of Judges shows us what destruction comes when there is no external authority. When self is supreme, when immediate happiness is more important than God's holiness, when we worship the God we want rather than the God who is, what happens? Well, Judges 17 through 21 tells us. You'll notice in these chapters, there is no external opponent mentioned. There is no worshiping of pagan gods that is listed. The focus is completely internal to God's people. The enemy is not out there. The enemy is the moral mess within. And so as we work through these chapters, it is critical, church, it is critical that we do not reduce to throwing rocks at the culture and we don't think this applies to those kind of Christians in those kind of churches. No, 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 Restoration Church. This is God's word for us to probe our hearts, to examine our lives, that we as God's people might delight in the supremacy of Christ together, not the supremacy of self. And so as we read these chapters, do not say, Israel is so stupid, why would they do that? No, let's say, Israel is so stupid. Why are we so often like them? Chapters 17 and 18, here's what we see. Israel worships a God they want in the way they want, rather than the God who is in the way he commands. Or to say it a different way, Israel reshapes the Lord so that their worship, their lives are more comfortable and convenient. As I walk through this text, I think we three, see three, at least three ways we can do this ourselves. Profession of the Lord apart from practice for the Lord. Using the Lord to get stuff from Him without delighting in Him. And then trying to cover our sins instead of trusting the Lord to forgive them. So profession apart from practice, using without delighting, trying instead of trusting. And so I hope you consider this morning's sermon, the Proverbs say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I hope you consider me a friend, because this is a heavy text. The text and the applications it reveal and expose and penetrate, but I trust as we see the depth of our need for Jesus, we'll love him all the more. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through the text, and then I want to come back and take those three, and I want to apply it to our lives. So we'll walk through the text, and then we'll come back and apply it. So, Judges chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you 
about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears? Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and metal image. Now, Thor, now therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took the 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made a carved image and metal image. And it was in a house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's the first thing we learn about Micah? He's a thief. He's stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Then he confesses. He's worried about the curse his mom ordered, so he confesses. But then his mom tries to reverse the curse and says, no, I want to bless my son now. And forgives him. So at first, it seems like she's a really good lady. Forgives her son, dedicates the silver to the Lord. Not exactly. How does she want the money to be used? To make a carved and metal image. There should be something inside of you going off. Like, isn't that against what God said to do? Yes! It's a direct violation of the first and the second commandment. And then she says she dedicates the money to the Lord, but what does she do? Not really. She only gives 200 there, and she puts like 900 in a shoebox under the bed just in case she needs to pat her pockets later. So she, in the same breath, she professes the Lord and betrays Him with her practice. She acknowledges the Lord, but she doesn't really have an affection for Him. And what about her son Micah? His own name means who is like the Lord. Surely he's going to correct his mom. No. He takes the silver idol, adds it to his collection at home. Not only that, but he then gets an ephod and ordains his son as a priest. Never mind the fact that God said there was to be a central temple designating his presence among the people. Never mind the fact that ephod was to be worn by one priest at that temple. And never mind the fact that the 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 priests were supposed to be Levites. He'll just do this all in his own home. How much more convenient for him. But you can imagine, you can hear Micah dreaming like, okay, I've got this temple in my house. I've got an ephod. I've got a priest. Oh, that if I just had a, it would just be so much better if I had a Levite as a priest. That'd be really good. Judges 17, 7 through 13. Now there's a young man of Bethlehem and Judah. Of the family of Judah who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. As he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Michael ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. 
Wow. Micah sees the traveling Levite from Bethlehem, begins to question him and quickly learns he's a Levite, he's a priest. Yes! says, guess what? I'll give you an annual salary. I'll give you your housing allowance. I'll give you a wardrobe budget, health insurance. Just come on in. What do the priests do? Priests, remember, were supposed to be the ones who, who protected God's people in worship and ensured proper worship was happening. The go-between between God and his people. <clears throat> so this priest should rebuke Micah. But this opportunity is, is too good to pass up. The financial gain is too much to deny. The comfortable circumstances to attempting to reject. So instead of rebuking Micah, what's the Levite do? He joins the self-directed worship. Notice what the text says. Verse 10. He went in. We saw similar language back in chapter 16, where it said, it was talking of Samson. Samson went to Gaza. There he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. Just as Samson did what was right in his own eyes and went in, this Levite priest is doing what's right in his eyes, and he too went in to a house of false worship. Now Micah is truly excited. Now that I have a Levite priest, the Lord is going to prosper me. See, for Micah, the Lord isn't someone to worship because of how glorious he is. He's someone to use for how much he can personally gain. Micah is using the Lord to get stuff from him without truly delighting in him. Micah is all about the supremacy of self. So in chapter 17, we see the corrupted, self-directed worship of an Israelite household and a priest. Could it get any worse? Yeah. Chapter 18. <clears throat> chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Ding, 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 ding. Authors cueing us. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for an house and inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So at the beginning of chapter 18, the tribe, an entire tribe now enters the picture. And what are they doing? They're seeking for themselves an inheritance. Now we should ask, why? Why don't they have an inheritance? Why don't they have land? Remember back to the beginning of the book of Judges? They don't have land. It's not because of the Lord's reluctance to give it to them, but their refusal to obey. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 34 through 36, it documents how the tribe of Dan refuses to obey God and take him at his word. Joshua told them, hey, there's a portion of land the Lord has given to you. He brought up Google Maps, he outlined it, printed it out, and said, hey, go take it. And they refuse. They refuse to take God at his word. They doubt God's goodness. And instead of confessing their rebellion, repenting of their sin, appealing to the Lord, they take matters into their own hands. They do what is right in their own eyes. They come up with a plan to work out their own salvation and satisfaction. It's what they do. <clears throat> Verse 2 through 6. So the people of Dan sent five able-bodied men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. 
And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. So the Danites send five able-bodied men to spy out a piece of land. And these spies just happen to come across the house of Micah. And what do they find? A Levite priest. Instead of rebuking him, they join right in. Hey, this is convenient. We've already set out on our journey to determine what we're going to do. But, I mean, we could at least ask God now, can't we? So God is an afterthought. And it's interesting to note. Do you see what they said? Inquire of who? God. Do you notice that's the generic name for God, not the covenant name? The Lord? They have an idolatrous view of God, a generic view of God, and they ignore his word. He's already told them where to live, but now they stop at Micah's shrine to get more guidance. And how will the priest respond? Go in peace. The journey of the Lord is under his eyes. What a shallow reply. We have no indication this priest actually sought the Lord. Yet for pious cover, the Lord says it's okay. And notice what he says. He says something that says nothing. Yep, it's under the eye of the Lord. Well, of course it is. Everything's under the eye of the Lord. But that doesn't mean he agrees. It's all a sham. The Lord has already spoken. He would not endure such a faithless mission. So the Danites would not take the Lord for his word. But now they've been assured by an idolatrous Levite priest. That's good. The circumstances are lining up. This must be the will of God. They set out on their mission. And their mission, remember, their mission is to cover their own sin instead of confessing their rebellion. It's what they're doing. <coughs> Sorry. Verses 7 through 13 of chapter 18, we read how the five spies go to this land. It's called Laish. And it, the text tells us it's a, it's a place that's very good, has no lack of anything. Now, I'm not sure where Laish is, but we know, one of, we know at least something. It's either outside the God-given covenant boundaries, or it's another tribe's land. Either way, it does not belong to the tribe of Dan. They are doing what is right in their own eyes. And when the spies get to the land, you know what gives them confidence? The strength of their God? No. What gives them confidence is the weakness of their enemy and their own strength. They see the people in Laish as vulnerable and weak. Their mission has nothing to do with trust in God and everything to do with supremacy of self. So we have a tribe who refuses to confess their sin but tries to cover it up and bring about resolution in their own strength. They rally the troops. They go to take the land. Verse 13, what happens? They passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of our friend Micah. Well, what's at Micah's house? Everything they needed for their own personal temple. Carved images, an ephod, and even a Levite priest. Judges 18, 14 through 20. Then the men of the five men who had gone out to scout the country of Laish said to the brothers, 
Do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. Verse 18. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, notice the author's just kind of intent on these idolatrous things. Keeps repeating them. The priest said to them, what are you doing? Verse 19. And he said, they said to them, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or be a priest to the tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and carved image and went along with the people. The Danites show up with their men at the house of Micah. What will you do? Will they be faithful Israelites and smash the idols? No. They won't. With a bit of force, they seize the idolatrous goods from Micah's home. And at first, this Levite is he's really upset. His job is being taken away. He's used his very own credentials to get a good, comfortable job. Now it's being taken away from him. What is he going to do? Well, verse 19, they say, come with us and be a father and priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to the tribe and the clan of Israel? So essentially what happens here is this priest gets a job offer to move from First Baptist Podunk with a one family membership to the Mega Baptist Church with an entire clan. And he takes it. He takes it. And notice like his heart now. Before, it just said his heart was content to dwell in the house of Micah. Now what does it say? His heart was glad. Bigger is evidently better. So like Micah, the priest is not interested in worshiping the Lord because he's glorious. No, he's using the Lord for personal gain. This Levite is only about serving himself. He serves whoever will pay him. He tells people what they want to hear. And he moves on to what looks more impressive regardless of what the Lord might say. He's doing what's right in his own eyes without a genuine care for the people of God. Well, in verses 21 through 22, the Danites take off with the gods, little g, and the priest. In verse 23, Micah rallies his neighbors and chases down the tribe of the Danites. As they they march toward their version of the promised land, Micah and his neighbors catch up with them. And they, they come ready to fight. And... When they ask Micah, like, what are you doing? He's like, verse 24, you take my gods that I made. First of all, just think about how that ridiculous that statement is. You take the gods I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How devastating. All that Micah trusted in was taken from him. His self-made idols couldn't deliver what they had promised. 
So it is with all false gods. They don't deliver what they promise. But what about the Danites? What happens to them? Well, in verses 27 through 30, we read they make it to Laish and they take it over. They set up their idolatrous temple and it appears like their plan is working out. But notice what the text says in verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his son were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Do you notice that? Until the day of the captivity. Just as Danites took the idols from Micah, God would one day take the land from the Danites. Their mission looked momentarily successful, but only ended in destruction. The story ends with this sobering note, verse 31. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made. As long as the house of God was at Shiloh. All of this that we've read about in the book of Judges happened as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. In other words, God had made it possible for his people to approach him, to worship him, to enjoy him. The tabernacle, the place of worship with an authorized priest was in their midst, but they refuse to worship the way God commanded. They do what is right in their own eyes. So the issue with the Israelites is they didn't have a reverent awe and fear of the holiness of the Lord. They didn't believe that God's word was good. They didn't believe God was gracious. And because of that, they reshaped the Lord to make their worship more convenient and comfortable. Israel worships a God they want, not the God who is. Describes every character in our passage. Describes Micah's mom. It describes Micah. It describes the Levite. And it describes the tribe of Dan. And if we're not careful, it'll describe us as well. We can profess the Lord's name apart from practicing what the Lord desires. We can use God to get stuff from him without truly delighting in him. And we can try to cover our own sins instead of trusting in the Lord to forgive them. So let's think about how we might do these things. Profession apart from practice. What might it look like for us to profess the Lord's name but betray him with our actions? What might it look like to reshape the Lord so that our worship, our lives becomes more comfortable and convenient? Let me be clear what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about sincere struggles and failures. Restoration Church, we're not perfect. We never will be this side of heaven. So when I ask this question, I'm not talking about places where you're working out your salvation, where you're repenting of your waywardness, where you're inviting correction, where you're pursuing holiness. So many of you do this. And I praise God for that. So many of you help each other do this. And I praise God for that. So on one hand, I want to commend you. But I want to challenge you as well. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about areas 
where your comfort and convenience are more important than pursuing God and His holiness. I'm talking about areas of your life where your profession is like Micah's mom. Sovereign Lord, I dedicate this to you. And then you hide most of it under the bed to pad your life with comfort. I'm talking about cultivating an awe and a fear of the Lord and His glory that compels you to worship Him with every fiber of your being. I'm talking about being so satisfied with the Lord that the taste buds of your soul are satisfied in Him alone. See, God did not allow the Israelites to worship anywhere they wanted. Yet Micah set up a sanctuary for worship at his own convenience. The tribe of Dan does the same thing. No need to go to the temple in Shiloh with a legitimate priest. That's burdensome. That's inconvenient. Israel began to treat God the way we treat our toothbrush. It's individual. It's a personal preference. And we'll use it when we want. Here's some questions to maybe uncover, unearth where your profession is apart from your practice. Have you committed to a local church where you can serve? Or do you mainly consume church services for your own personal benefit? Is discipling others, helping them follow Jesus, a priority in your schedule or an optional burden that you just don't have time for? Do you ever say no to weekend travel so you can attend church on Sunday with your fellow covenant brothers and sisters at Restoration Church? Or when you do travel, do you make it a point to find a healthy church and gather? Have you explained to your children that your family can't participate in that birthday party or run that race or go to that event on Sunday morning because you've committed to the church? Again, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that's legalistic. I'm not talking about isolated instances. I'm simply saying as pastorally tender as I can. You probably miss more church than you think. And you may not realize how a habitual lateness or showing up and only singing the songs you want or participating in the ways you want is reshaping the Lord about your comfort and your convenience. If you do that, it says more about you, not about the Lord. But if Jesus, if Jesus is truly Lord and Savior and supreme and all satisfying to you, then gathering with His people to worship His name should not be relegated to the category, I'll go if nothing else comes up, or I'll show up with a warm latte and cold heart and do what I want to do when I want to do it. I have a burden, Restoration Church, that our worship of the Lord is comfortable and convenient on our terms, on our timetables, and not submitting to the glory of Christ. Here are a few more questions. Do you speak with convictional kindness on biblical issues? like the exclusivity of Jesus, racism, the sanctity of human life, sexual ethics, even when it's socially costly. 
Or, out of comfort, do you choose to remain silent? Or, out of convenience, are you tempted to change your position altogether? Do you give generously and sacrificially to the church and other gospel-minded organizations? Or do you give a token nod and use the rest to pad your pockets like Micah's mom? When thinking about that job promotion or considering that move or pursuing that advanced degree, do you seek godly wisdom for how it might affect your walk with Jesus and involvement with his people, or is that too inconvenient? Are you willing to say no to a good opportunity if it would compromise your growth in Christ and hinder your ability to serve the church? Or is that too uncomfortable? Or, maybe just to wrap it in one big question, Is your idea of following Jesus shaped more by the comfort of the red, white, and blue American dream or the blood-stained cross of Jesus Christ? Is your idea and hope of following Jesus shaped more by the comfort of the red, white, and blue American dream or by the red-stained blood cross of Christ? We live in a spiritually dangerous time and place. It's comfortable, even admirable, to pick and choose which attributes of God we like and which actions we want to take. But as another said, we can end up worshiping a comfortable God, but also a non-existent one. As the saying goes, either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. But, the issue is not just our behavior. This is not about legalism, box checking, behinds and seats on Sunday morning. That's not what this is about. It's deeper. The greatest commandment is not do these things. The greatest commandment is love this triune God. And we love only because He first loved us and sent His Son to die for all those that would trust in Him. And so the issue is not just our actions, but our affections. We have to realize everything we do is shaping our loves, our affections, our desires. So let me just take one example. Missing church. It's not that missing church is bad, per se. It's what happens to you when that happens. So when we miss church, we miss praying with other believers, adoring God together and confessing with one another. You miss that. We might miss the Lord's Supper being reminded of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. We miss the preaching of God's Word that reminds us of the wonders of the Gospel. We miss a foretaste of heaven where all of God's people will be together singing and fellowshipping forever. And as good as podcasts are, they're not that good. See, when we reshape the Lord to make our lives more comfortable and convenient, the greatest danger is not the action, but what happens to our affection. Christ. Our loves are being bent away from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who satisfies forever. See, the gap between our profession and our practice is not labor. It is love. The gap between our profession and our practice is not doing more things. It's loving Jesus. So if you've been convicted, let me encourage you not to resolve to do more. No. Repent 
of your sin, confess and beg God to help you see and to savor of the glories of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. Then act as the Spirit shapes your affections. When that doesn't happen, when we don't delight in God, we'll simply use Him, like Micah and the priest. So what does it look like to use God without delighting in God? Well, remember the words of Micah. Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. The Lord has been reduced to a lucky rabbit's foot. So the Lord is no longer a person to be worshipped. He's a superstition to be invoked. And the priest treats God the same way. He uses his credentials to move up in the world. He uses even his, the, the name of God to make his life more comfortable and convenient. What about us? What are some ways we might seek to use God instead of delighting in him? Well, I think subtly it happens when we, we think or voice maybe even things like this. If I read my Bible enough, then God will fill in the blank. Lord, since I've obeyed so well recently, now you owe me. If God doesn't give you what you want, is there something you're willing to sin to get? If God doesn't give you what you want, is there something you're willing to sin to get? If I only had this, then I'd be happy. What is this? Spouse, job, more leisure time. That's where God gets me. I just had more comfort. Again, these things aren't bad. I'm talking about hoping in them. In trying moments, in those hard moments, do you turn from God and accuse Him? Or do you turn to Him? Or maybe even more dangerous, in those triumphant moments, do you turn to God or do you ignore Him? Another way to determine this is by examining your prayer life. Are your prayers seasoned with adoration? Do they confess specific sins? Do they offer thankfulness? If God answered all your prayers from this past week, how many lost people would be saved? How many brothers and sisters would be built up in Christ? How many social justice issues would be resolved? How many churches would be planted? Or are your prayers mainly asking for things for yourself? Like Micah. Do your prayers treat God as a genie to be manipulated or a treasure to be enjoyed? Inside of us, there's a tendency to make God a supporting character in our own self-directed movie. He becomes a prop in our play. Instead of wanting to be rewritten as new characters in his unfolding drama of restoration. And we do this because we're suspicious of God. We're suspicious of his grace. (coughs) We're suspicious that he really wants what's good for us. We struggle to believe that God really and truly satisfies. We struggle to believe that God will willingly do its best for us. And so we reduce him so that we might manipulate him to get what we think will make us happy. And we become like Micah. We become like the priest. We become like the tribe of Dan. We think God is holding out on us. 
Don't believe the lie, beloved. Don't believe the lie. He's not holding out on you. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly, Psalm 84. If God is for us, he who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. Christian brother and sister, God loves you and he wants to give you something better than worldly success and comfortable circumstances. He wants to give you himself, which satisfies forever. Don't believe the lies, beloved. Behold your God who loves you and has lavished his grace upon you in Christ. Nothing can separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Don't believe the whispers of Satan and the lies of the world that happiness is found somewhere else. Look what happens to every person in Judges 17 and 18. In fact, the whole book, it ends in destruction. When we believe these lies, we're tempted to live like the Danites. We're tempted to cover our sin instead of turning to the God who can forgive our sins and trusting in Him. Trying to cover our sin instead of trusting God to forgive it. See, the Danites reshape God to fit what they want and they desire. They minimize God's holiness and justice. They think they can literally run and outdo the judgment of God. That's crazy. But here's something else. They minimize the grace and the goodness of God. So they refuse to confess their wrongs and turn to him for forgiveness. In essence, the tribe of Dan is trying to atone or pay for their own sin. They lack faith in God. And they think they're strong enough in themselves to get what salvation promises. Does it sound familiar? So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're aware of your failures. Maybe you know that you've rebelled against God. You know that there's something more to life. There is a promised land out there as it were. And you believe the only way out is to work hard enough to cover your disobedience to obtain the promise for yourself. Can I plead with you not to do that? Can I plead with you to realize that God is too holy and just for you to outrun Him? And can I plead with you to realize that God is so gracious you don't have to? What option do I have, Joey? Well, you don't have to run from God. Because here's the good news. He's run to us in Christ. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, coming to be everything we want and need. See, the Israelites needed a king. The Israelites needed a priest. The Israelites needed a temple. The Israelites wanted a promised land. The same is true for you. Deep down, there's a king that you desire. There's a priest that you need. There's a temple that's required. And there's a promised land you hope for. And they're all found in Christ. Jesus Christ is the king who not only rules from a throne, he redeems from a cross. Jesus is the priest who doesn't offer up platitudes, but truly intercedes on behalf of his people. Jesus is the temple where a holy holy God and a sinful people meet. And Jesus is the one who conquered death and leads us to the eternal promised land where we'll rest forevermore. 
So will you stop running and trying to cover and start repenting and trusting in Christ? No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think you've messed up, no matter how much shame you feel, no matter how dirty you think you are, Jesus is enough. Christ is enough. Will you come to him? You don't have to run and cover. You can trust and abide in him. Here's what's perhaps most tragic about this whole episode. The Israelites were trying to do what God had already done. God gave the Israelites the land. He made it possible for them to know him and worship him and be in his presence that they might enjoy his blessing. They're trying to do what God has already done. Remember those final words. The house of God was at Shiloh. You know where Shiloh was? It's in Ephraim. You know where Micah's house was? It's in Ephraim. God had put himself in their midst. God had provided everything the Israelites needed for salvation and satisfaction, life and blessing. And he's done the same for us. Praise God that instead of Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, a faithless, self-serving priest, we have Jesus, the eternal Son of God, a faithful, sacrificial priest. Praise God that although there was no king in those days, we have the perfect king, Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't reduce God to something or someone you want. Worship Him for who He is. He's much better than you can imagine. Much better. So it's my prayer the Holy Spirit would give us grace to do this. That our ultimate goal in the Christian life would not be comfort and convenience, but it would be Christ. We would worship the one true King. So may the Holy Spirit deepen our love for Jesus so that, yes, our profession matches our practice. That we don't just use God, but we try to delight in Him. And then, when we do rebel and we do sin, we don't try to run and cover it. We trust in God who ran to us in Christ, that He might redeem us and forgive us, that we might have freedom. The Israelites were looking for a promised land. That's what Christ has bought on the cross and through his resurrection. There is a promised land to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would not only convict us, but you would comfort us. And you would compel us with the love of Christ to worship you for who you are in all of your glory, all of your majesty, all of your holiness. Do this, Lord, as we journey together, not to the false promised lands of this world, but to the true promised land that is to come, heaven on earth, where the King of kings and the great judge 
or restore all things back to the way they're supposed to be. Give us grace as we do that, as we journey together. Amen.